Hello, and welcome to Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. I'm Jared. And I'm Sean. And we're Science. back. You're, I, you're Sean Signs? I am. Well, why didn't you introduce yourself as Signs? You said Cosines. Because it's a thing we do. Oh, well, that doesn't make sense. And it confuses our audience because they're very smart, but they can't see us. They can't. And our voices sound exactly alike. Exactly. So, you know, we're a little tricky. No. Have I ever mentioned how epic our opening music is? I like... Do you know what our epic opening song is from? Uh, I I do, but d- does the audience is the question. I don't think they do. Even though we put it that. in the credits every week. Nobody reads the credits, man. It's like reading instructions. Wait, you're supposed to read the instructions? Exactly. So where does that music come from, Jared? That is from Overclocked Remix. That is from Donkey Kong Country 2. Yeah, it's very kind of building, and it's like, hey, something cool's about to happen, and then we <laughs> and start then, talking. And then we come in. <laughs> and we deflate all of those expectations almost immediately, if not by the time we get to the main t- topic, usually. Yeah, we really ruin it with the main topic. So so we're back. We We've are. We've been gone. But we're back. That's all that matters. You know, we, we've been told before by our media and marketing coordinator, we need to stop mentioning when we have gaps because it doesn't matter. People consume these episodes in whatever order and whenever they choose to consume them. Yeah, it is new media. Right. So. You're thinking very old school like old man Jared would. Oh, yeah. I bet you call people on the phone to talk too. No, I, I would never do that. Yeah, I would. I yeah. do it all the time. Yeah. He does. Often. That's how you know it's me. (laughs) (laughs) You can't be sure with a text message. Exactly. We're back. So let's get into our tangents. Because I'm really excited for this episode. This is one we spent like two weeks preparing for. We did. And I think we've got a wonderful main topic this this episode. I think so too. I think so too. So let's get through this kind of annoying fluff at the beginning that we put in here to pad the show. We'll get it out of the way for you guys because we know you want to get to that main topic. Because it's the only thing that you listen for, right? Really, everybody just skips to about 50 minutes into the episode to hear us talk about something for 30 minutes. Yeah, I think sometimes we do that backwards. Have you noticed that? In most shows, the main topic is like the meat of the show. But for us... It's just kind of this thing we do after we're done talking about random events that have happened. Well, it's not science, cosines, main topics, and tangents. That's fair. That's very fair. Just saying. So, uh, there's this little independent film coming out April 27th. You know, every time you do that, it it gets so new and original. I love (laughs) when you do that, Jared. Uh, Indiana Jones? Yeah. Oh, God. I don't want them to do that. Because there's a fifth one coming. I know. Now that Ready Player One is over. And we'll talk about Ready Player One by the end of this tangent section. I want to hear your take. Oh, yes, you do. So, Infinity War. Yeah. The movie that everybody's talking about, everybody's going to go see. Okay, so why are we talking about it? Because there's a new trailer. Is this a trailer review show? Is this a show where we tell people what happens verbally when they're watching a trailer? Yeah, we're going to dissect the tw- the trailer for about 20 minutes. Go okay, over well, every Easter That egg. is in keeping with our past yeah. performance. Yeah. So, so what? why do we care that there's a new trailer? The, the movie comes out at the time we're recording this in about three weeks. I don't know. I put it in the show notes because I thought it was cool. Okay. So that's why we're talking about it. You really like the trailer. It's, it's increased your hype and it's made you want to see it more than once. 
Yes. Okay. Though yes. you have not seen the actual final product. No. And they've hinted that everything we've seen in the trailers are a lie. Yeah, they've done that in other trailers with, like, Thor, where he didn't have the eye patch, but then you watch the film, and then he has an eye patch. And then they redo the trailer, so he has an eye patch. What are we supposed to believe? That Thor's a god and his eye could be grown back. Is that true? Well, he's a god. But do God's eyes grow back? Depends on what god you are. I mean, Balder died and came back. Of course, it took Ragnarok for him to come back. But that's actual Norse mythology, not Marvel Norse mythology. We've gone off on an extreme tangent so far. No, it's completely related to (laughs) Infinity War. Because it's about the Clash of Gods. So I'm excited. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm excited too. But, I mean, this is almost kind of a gimme for Marvel. Uh, it's a a throw in. Yeah, this this a is a softball pitch. Yeah, I mean, at this point, if you're somebody who's made them enormously wealthy by watching all of these films for the last twenty years, then you're kind of committed. I think you signed it when you walked into when you walked out of Iron Man two, going, "What the hell are they doing?" I think they they secretly had you agree when you signed As your receipt. Okay, yeah, that you had to go see this film where they may or may not kill everybody. And especially Hawkeye. <laughs> Did you see that article that came out uh, just a couple days ago? It was like, don't worry. Hawkeye's Hawkeye is movie. definitely in the movie. <laughs> there's a reason that we didn't show him. It's because he has like a two and a half minute part. But there's a reason and we want to build hype. Hey guys, it's me, Hawkeye. I'm in the film. I'll see you later. I've got no powers and I'm not a cute chick. So you won't see me because I'll be with my kids and my wife. See you at the credits. <laughs> I might come back in episode four. I'll come back when you don't expect me to come back to shoot an arrow at Thanos' uh, gauntlet and knock one of the stones out. and Then I'll be like, bye. Probably the mind soul. Yeah. Or maybe the reality soul. Because, <laughs> you know, the whole next movie, everybody has already guessed that it's the reboot reset of the line. Yeah, it is. Because, like, the three main actors have all said, we're going to go do something else right now. Yeah. I'm excited. I don't know about you. You're you're tempering your expectations. Or... No, actually, I'm not. I'm not tempering them at all. I'm exactly as excited as I sound. Which. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited. I'm almost to the point of fatigue. I'm so excited. <laughs> about superhero movies in general. Yeah, that's true. I'm ready for them to be... Hey, speaking of superhero films, uh, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Uh, we got some more information Billy about Batson. Captain Marvel. No, 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 not that one. That's, that's Shazam coming, right? now. He's Shazam. No, no, it's Captain Marvel. No, he is canonically Shazam now. No, Shazam is the wizard who gave him his powers. That too, but he is also Shazam. And that's also what he says to transform. That's very confusing, because that's his word of power because of the seven yeah. Yeah. You know, intelligent people. People got, people got too confused having to think that this character that says Shazam all the time isn't his name. They're but like, it was well, never his name. Because Batman just goes around saying bat missiles, bat No, vehicle. he doesn't have voice-activated weapons. He's not an anime Yes, he does. He says activate Batwing. He does it all the time. Oh, um, I'm reading the wrong comics. And Superman's like, that's super. Well... <laughs> The old version of Superman, maybe Silver Age. The Snyder verse, he's like, I will kill you. And I'm depressed. Smile? Smile. (laughs) 
Well, and then he comes back and tries to kill everybody. Um, so we were supposed to be talking about the next Marvel movie, Captain Marvel, about Captain Marvel and his offshoot, Carol Danvers. Not Danvers. Carol Danvers is Supergirl. No. Isn't it? No, Carol Danvers is Supergirl. No, that's not true. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on one guy. Second We're doing place. an internet search. No, you're right. It is Carol Danvers. Thank you. <laughs> I was thinking of Monica Rambeau. See, there's a deep cut for you. Okay. So, anyhow. Um, hold on. Captain Marvel is Supergirl. It's all tied together. <laughs> all right, I lost my. No, geek. it says right here. I lost my geek cred on that one. <laughs> because so, Captain Marvel is such an important character in Marvel history, I'm glad they brought such a, a hugely relevant character to the forefront. So it's the first female led superhero film because they had no confidence in black widow and they let um, jennifer what's her name make that black widow movie which actually ended up horrible which so that's good (laughs) i was afraid it was going to be good but then we never get a black widow movie but now there's incentive to still make one by the way if you you haven't caught on with this episode we've decided to turn the tangents all the way up to 11 yeah 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 because we felt we were being a little too structured and so when we were doing our prep for the show, Jared's like, you know, I think we're becoming a little predictable and, and not tangenty enough or tangy enough. I don't I don't know what word you actually This episode for. of Science, Cosines, <laughs> and Tangents is brought to you by Tang. <laughs> the drink of astronauts. Mix it in your cup and slam it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So back to Captain Marvel. There's some new announcements. There's, there's, we, we've been revealed so, that some former... Stars of the Marvel Universe are reappearing in this 1990s set. So, what do you think story? of this? We we were told early on that uh, Sam Jackson was going to be back as um, Nick Fury, pre eye patch. Oh, okay, so that sets it very definitely in the 90s. So we're going to find out maybe how he got the eye patch. No, we found that out in Winter Soldier. Did we? Yeah. Okay. Did we? I believe we did. When they were talking about the embassy attack and Robert Redford's character and Nick Fury saved him. And are you going to look it up? Yeah, I mean, seriously, you're, you're right. That time. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure we already learned it. Okay. But anyhow, you're not going to beat me on Captain America trivia. It's just not. No, gonna no, no. So also we got some announcements that other stars that were coming back, uh, including one return to the Marvel universe. Phil Coulson. It's Phil, son of Cole. Son of Cole. Yes. Uh, back in his shield days before he got, um, project Tahiti'd. which um, is, I think guarantee that agents of shield is ending this season. You think so? Cause that's the only way Phil Coulson's going to end up back in the Marvel universe. I mean, Clark Gregg's are a really cool actor and he's really been committed to the television show. So if they're pulling him into this in any kind of substantive role, I think it's kind of a sign that the TV division is well, after Inhumans, I'm surprised they didn't kill the whole thing. Okay. Just also, my thought. We also got some announcements that some former Kree are coming back. Well, one of them's not Kree. Well, one Kree. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ronan, the Accuser. Which is Lee Pace, who's always fun to watch, even though he basically had a generic villain role in the first Guardians This might of the be Galaxy. before his exile, before yeah. he was... Uh, before he was the Kree outcast. Yeah. 
Um, also, Corvath, the Pursuer, which I just uh, why his character wasn't that good in Guardians, but it's just nice to see continuity. The, the continuity, the bringing yeah. back. Uh, we're gonna get the Kree Scroll War. So we're getting scrolls. That's really the key piece here. Do you think we're getting secret invasion? I think that there will be elements of that. If not, that could even be the next Avengers film. You know, after they resolve the Thanos thing, we could end up with a secret invasion. And that's why Captain Marvel doesn't appear until the fourth Avengers movie. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know. I was excited to see some continuity with Captain Marvel to kind of mm-hmm. inset her into the, the world in a way that makes no sense. Yeah, well, I mean, they did set up enough fuzzy area that it could have happened. And if she's been out in space and not on Earth because of the whole Kree thing, then maybe it makes sense that, you know, because Nick Fury did say in his initial appearance in Iron Man that there are other people like Tony Stark that led them to the idea of need for the Avengers initiative. Yep. It had to come from something. And, and to me, it lends some, uh, I don't know, not credibility is not the word. But credence? Credence to Clearwater Fury revival to wanting to build up his army to protect from space. Well, and if you remember, there's kind of a, a weird shift in what they say in the first Iron Man and the second Iron Man between what we got with the first Avengers film where it looks like they're full steam ahead trying to build the team. And then all of a sudden, when you get to the Avengers film, it's like, yeah, we, we don't have a team and we're going to try and figure it out. Um, so maybe this will explain kind of why that happened. You know, I, I don't know. It could just be because Marvel really didn't have a plan. They just liked the idea of seeding this universe. And then when they actually worked with Joss Whedon to make the plan, it didn't quite match. So they went a different direction. But could be. Who knows? We've spent like 20 minutes talking about start, um, Disney movies now, so, you know. Well, it is all connected. Mickey will show his premiere in the MCU at some point. I'm still waiting for the Marvel superheroes to show up in Kingdom Hearts 3 or 4 or 12. That, that will happen. Um, little note of a little game. Um, I don't know if you like this game or not. We were just talking about it earlier. Uh, Ikaruga. Ikaruga is a very, very well established. Uh, there's tons of imitators for this game. Actually, there's like none, which we call we we classified it as what when we were talking about it a flip shooter, a flip flippy shooter. flop shooter, or yeah. whatever. Because it's got this really cool mechanic. For those of you who haven't played it, it originally came out on the Wii. No, actually, it was GameCube arcade then GameCube. Well, yeah. none of us live in Japan. We didn't get to play it on the arcade. Well, okay, maybe we have listeners in Japan. If we do. Howdy, and welcome. Welcome to our non-Japanese podcast. Which has no relevance to the Japanese audience, I'm sure. Uh, But Ikaruga did start on the GameCube, and and it was kind of known for being this really, really hard bullet hell shooter. Um, It's a vertical scroller, and in the kind of style of the classic 1943 type, or Raiden shooting games. Yeah, it's coming to the PS4. They've announced that, but they have not announced the Switch. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially what they've announced is they're porting it again. They brought it to PC a year or so ago. Yeah, it was about a year ago. Um, And they've announced it's coming to consoles, and I don't see them launching this for just PS4 and not Switch at this point. 
Um, my hope is also uh, Radiant Silvergun comes along. Mm-hmm. I mean, Treasure doesn't really make games anymore. No. Um, they're just trying to sell their games in as Keep many ways as them. possible. Yeah, um, they've become the Harmony Gold of gaming. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a perfect fit for the Switch, but I did want to add a recommendation on here. If you are looking for a shooter on the Switch right now, um, there's one called Denmaku Unlimited 3, you know, because you're obviously familiar with the first two. But if it's unlimited, why did it need sequels? I don't know. I don't think they were. Maybe they were. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was a PC shooter that, that has been ported to the Switch. Uh, it, it the, Its mechanic, its weird main mechanic is the closer you... So you, your ship takes up a, a block, right? Mm-hmm. But you can actually still touch bullets as long as they don't touch your core in the center, which is just like, so a, it's like gummy it's, ship. It's sort of like a dot. Um, okay. And then as if you get, if you get that margin and you dodge bullets in that margin, it's you called tracing. You build, yeah, you build a charge and then, yeah. so, so you want to be skirting your bullets all the time yeah. instead of completely avoiding them. Exactly. So that's interesting. interesting. It's fun. Uh, recommend it. It's like $10. That's the best kind shooter. of fun. It's a good expensive fun. Yep. Um, so there's another little news bit that's already kind of, you may have heard about it. Um, one of your favorite uh, stores. KB Toys? Hold on. <coughs> that's a first. First sneeze on the podcast. Yeah, I'm going to have to talk to our engineer about doing some editing to get rid of that. Yeah. That's completely disruptive. You just broke the flow of the show. I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Toys R Us, right? Toys R Us is closing. Did you want to be a Toys R Us kid? I did. So, I have fond memories of, of... I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. I have memories of me being a child. I wasn't sure if you had memories of being a child because and, it was so long ago. Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do. And Toys R Us was actually around when I was a child. Yep. Uh, and actually, the the best birthday Christmas because they kind of blend into each other in my childhood. Cause I was born in December uh, birthday Christmas presents I ever got. We went to Toys R Us and picked up and it was the uh, old, oh, I wouldn't say old at this point, but the original laser tag set Oh man! with the rifle. And I had the rifle and I was everybody's enemy because the rifle had rapid fire built into it and also had a much better range than the pistols. Wow. And it was this sleek white piece of plastic that I wish I still had to this day. Cause it was a cool gun. And, you know, me too. So Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have any specific memories of toys, Toy Story. I also got my... Um, toys R Us. Come to think of it, I also got my Robotech uh, in- Invid Invasion Alpha Fighter at a Toys R Us, which... And my Shock Trooper, or my uh, Invid Shock Trooper. So, um, as part of my amiibo hunting over the past few years with their <laughs> stupid exclusives. Yes. Exclusives. I had to visit Toys R Us a few times. You mean like Detective Pikachu? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will say that out of all the brick and mortar stores out there, they have the most, they, they did have the most diverse set of toys. I mean, they had mm-hmm. board games, Legos, connects. They, they used had, to sell Dungeons and Dragons modules. Yeah. I mean, they have they had everything and I don't see yeah. there's not really that void. And I know there's rumors that KB is going to come back and fill the void. And no, I think that the traditional toy store is dead. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's not just Amazon killing it. I think that people don't play with physical toys as much. 
Yeah. Except for weird people like you collect, and we'll come back to that topic yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. But well, yeah, but even with the you know with just the screen technology, it's apps and games, and yeah. I think still little kids play with toys. But again, I don't think they're wanting to play with Transformers or any sort of line of toys. Of, mm, it's mostly forty-five-year-old men now. Yeah, who couldn't sustain the toy business because they do direct and they buy the Black Series, you know, sale barge for four hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> so uh, I'll leave I'll leave you with this in our memories of Toys R Us I don't want to grow up I'm a Toys R Us kid there's a million toys at Toys R Us that I could play with From bikes and trains to video games It was the biggest toy store there is I don't want to grow up Because if I did I wouldn't be Man, that dude is really depressed. I know. About, about the closing a of a store. retailer. <laughs> Minor key makes everybody depressed. I'm I sorry. know. I don't know how I'm going to continue on. Hey, let's talk about other sad stuff. <laughs> sea um, of Thieves is a great segue. So Sea of Thieves, yes. made by Rare. Rare, uh, which a studio who's studio. rarely missed. Haha, see what I did there? Yeah. Rarely missed the mark in making a fun game. And they've been relegated to... Viva Pinata games. Hey, those are fun games. Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. Not as fun, um, but still interesting. And I, I kill rare is not no. rare is not what they once were. But Sea of Thieves announced a couple E3s ago. Looked intriguing. You got to play as a pirate co-op on the ship with your friends online. It looked like gameplay that wasn't out there. Um, and it was what did we one, get? Of, one of like two Xbox exclusive titles that yeah. has been announced in the last 16 years. Yeah. Uh, so what did we get? We got a half-finished game with cartoony graphics, which is okay. We signed up for that part. Uh, that has basically no, no tutorial. There's no single player. It's you spawn in, you join a crew, you go do a mission, and you come back and you go find another mission, and then you join a different crew. And, and we'll talk about one of the problems with the crew mechanics in our one dumb thing this week. Uh, but having played... So I, I had a Xbox Game Pass subscription that I was trying out just to see if it was worth it. Um, and Sea of Thieves, like all future, I guess, exclusive Xbox games, is going to be released for free to Game, pa game Pass owners. So I installed Sea of Thieves. I logged in. I set up my character. I joined a crew on a ship. And the ship was already at sea. At which point we encountered another ship and we started firing on them. Um, I guess the other people in my crew 
didn't like what was going on, so they voted me into the brig. And I was stuck in the brig until the ship sunk. And then I respawned in the ship's brig. And it got sunk again. And that was the fun loop of Sea of Thieves, day three. That sounds, uh, not fun. No, no, not fun. Not, not really. It didn't really have a sense of pirate adventure for me. So from what I was watching about it, it seems like the questing is very limited in the activities you can do. Well, one of the things I thought was weird, and I did play a little bit beyond this horrible experience I just described, uh, but when you go and you find pirate treasure, in most games, you would open the pirate treasure and get a reward. In this game, you pick up the pirate treasure, you put it on your ship, you go back to port, and you turn in the pirate treasure. You never open the treasure chest. There's, it's not like, you know, Zelda, where you open it and you get, you know, amazing music and everybody gets a rare loot drop or anything like that. The, the progression, the gameplay, all of it doesn't really make sense to me. When you consider that people on the internet are already the worst. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is a game that, sure, you can party up with your buddies, but... You're effectively playing against and with people on the internet. And there's like two enemies in the game. There's other players and skeletons. Cool. How long do you think that's interesting? An hour. Well, if you like PvP games, you still won't like this. It's just... It's not... It's... uh, I loved it. I will always uninstall it. So this... It's not like this is a uh, early access game no. that came out. They've been talking about Sea of Thieves for years. And they did a beta, and, and they did some early access gameplay, and they've done a lot of very positive press, which makes me wonder, where did these people play? You know, the press demos that they've done that have generated all of this hype and kind of excitement for the game, and some of the Twitch streamers and the YouTubers that were playing in the, the limited exposure betas, it seems like they were probably set up in very prescribed scenarios with very limited gameplay snippets where they could say, okay, you and the other four people that we've given access to, we're going to be on this ship and you're going to have this mission and we're going to set you up for that. And they probably got a briefing beforehand that allowed them to go do that. That actually is cool. And you generally encounter that when you're in a press um, beta or a a press pre-release where they will not give you access to the full game and they'll kind of set the scenario for you and and you kind of excuse that as a member of the press when you're reviewing the stuff except what we got here as a final game feels kind of like that press beta Mm -hmm. where you've got to make your own story and you kind of got to figure out how to play the game on your own and there's some social systems in here that no one who's followed player behavior in an MMO setting would ever think was a good idea. There's there's just... You're putting a bunch of random people together to go find hunt treasure and discover islands and sail and do broadsides, which that's always fun for me. I'm a big fan of naval combat in games. But this... Oh, it was so disappointing. I uninstalled it within, like, a day. So, from Sean's recommendation, don't play it. Nope. So. Even if you get it for free as a Game Pass, don't waste your time. Yeah, because I think they're selling it for free with new Xboxes or something. Oh, they're trying to get market share. They're trying to get people playing Xbox games. Uh, So let's move on. Pathfinder version 2.0. Yes, so moving to the tabletop RPG space, you know, the the kind of successor of 
third edition Dungeons and Dragons, which is now two editions ago in the Dungeons and Dragons world, was the Pathfinder role-playing game, which was built off the D20 engine and basically did all the crunchy, numbery, fun D&D stuff that the 3.0 and 3.5 versions of D&D did, even though D&D continued to move on, um, is now getting its own update, which all indications are that um, they're moving more towards the kind of narrative uh, adaptive system that fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons is using where you can kind of build your own characters and, and you can put as much or as little mechanic into it as you like. But the big news right now with version 2.0, and we're at least a year out from publication on this, they're selling hardcover versions of the playtest for people who are interested in buying the playtest rules beforehand. Now, this is not a new thing for RPG publishers. When Fantasy Flight Games uh, reintroduced the Star Wars RPG, they actually put out limited runs of the beta in um, bound form for players to use before pre-release and to, to provide feedback. So if you're somebody who is a longtime RPG fan, who's used Pathfinder, and who's interested in maybe seeing that entire system evolve a little bit to match more modern approaches to RPGs like you're seeing, you know, on a weekly basis on Critical Role or, you know, the D&D podcasts that you see on Twitch all the time. Pathfinder 2.0 looks to align Pathfinder much closer to that. So for those out there who are interested, we'll put a link to the Pathfinder playtest in our show notes. Um, I've read over a lot of it. Um, a system's a system to me. Mm-hmm. One of the big things that they are changing that it, you know, kind of cries modern social justice a little bit to me, good or bad. I don't care what side of that fence you're on. Just a change is a change. There's no longer a thing called race when you make your character. It's now your ancestry. Because race has a negative connotation, so they're shifting the the terminology. And potentially the way that it runs, it's a little bit different. That's weird. Yeah, we'll have to see how it plays out. Especially in a fantasy setting, I mean... Well, I mean, you traditionally, if you look at the Tolkien model, right? You've got elves, dwarves, humans, goblins, orcs, and they're all the races of Middle-earth. In this case, they're saying, well, what's your ancestry? Well, I am from, you know, the the goblin tribes of blah, 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 blah. And it's not, it's my race. It's who are my people and where did I come from? So I, I don't know if it's a political correct movement thing or if it's just they want to get away from the race mechanic because in many ways it's been very limiting to building kind of organic characters. Um, but here's the thing. When people build role-playing game characters, especially when they first start, it's nice to have a template to follow, right? Even if you're the most creative person in the world, it takes a while to learn the mechanics, and having something like a I'm a human and humans tend to be inquisitive, they're the most adaptive, but they're not the most special. And we forgot to unplug the dehumidifier. This is just a bang up podcast we're doing hey, today. Hey, you know what? It's been a few weeks. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's it, it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves. But for the traditional RPG fans out there, and if you liked Starfinder, which I'm having a great time running for, for my game group on Sundays... Um, Pathfinder 2.0 might be a little closer to the D&D 5 experience with a slightly different take. So, check it out. Alright. Other news. Other news. Because we, we've gone like three tangents without talking about superheroes. Yep. So, and I'm getting kind of fatigued not talking about them. And, and, and 
now we need to come back and bring oh. it back home to what we're, this podcast is all about. Yeah. Which is video games. Oh, is that what it's about? And stuff. Oh, it's in stuff too. The, the tangents are stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, and yeah. math. No. No, I was told there'd be no math. You're right. There won't be. Hey, I won the test. Uh, so Spider-Man it was a title announced for the PS4 two years ago. Mm-hmm. Almost three at this point. An exclusive for PlayStation 4 made by Insomniac. Right. So a game studio that understands open world superhero gaming pretty well. Um, they finally released the release date. September 7th. A day which will live in joy September and... September 7th. <laughs> 7th forever. I, I think it's easy to say for somebody who's a lifelong fan of the character... Yep, Everything I've seen. This, I have... I put in the show notes, I have high hopes for this. And we're not going to sing high hopes at this point, right? Because we're not playing that song I want what Arkham... You want uh, Arkham Spider. Asylum and City were for Batman for Which Spider-Man. we had with Spider-Man 2. But we didn't. Yeah, you know, we, we did the best that it could do in that generation. Spider-Man for the PlayStation 1 is the best Spider-Man no, game. No, Spider-Man 2 for the PlayStation 1 is the best Spider-Man. No. Because it had adaptive missions and a, an open world setting. And they were all the same. Well, but it still was more than we were used to getting at the time. Whereas... Spider-Man 1 for the PlayStation 1 was a very crafted experience with all of the villains and voice acting that you would expect. Yeah, but it was still linear. It was linear, but... Okay. And actually, I have an interesting uh, connection to that game anyways from Activision, the original Spider-Man game. Mm-hmm. It was the first video game I professionally reviewed. And what did you review it as? It was an A. C? No, I, I'm not C? saying it's a bad game at all. I'm so, saying Spider-Man 2 was the pinnacle... Of, of Spider-Man I think games. Spider-Man 2 was the pinnacle only because of the gameplay, nothing else. The story wasn't bad when you stuck to the main story. The, the side quests, rescue a balloon or get a balloon for a kid and rescue a cat. And, and then do it again. And, and oh, there's a purse snatcher on every purse single snatcher square corner. <laughs> As of, you can tell, we've both spent a lot of hours yeah. with that game. Um, no, this is, this is looking really good. Um, the movement in the game is something I'm kind of after hearing people playing it, they got mm-hmm. some exclusive views of just how they pulled off this very fluid dynamic movement because Batman, when, when Arkham came out, it's all like, about ballet. Batman is a ballet game. It feels like Batman because Batman is stalk. He doesn't run. I mean, he, he goes in, he just, charges and shoulder throws, but yeah. I and mean, he's he, not acrobatic. Because, yeah, exactly. Now Robin or Nightwing are acrobatic fighters and they were in those games. Yeah. Right. And, and Catwoman also. Uh, so you had a difference in the way they played, but the main character of Batman in the Arkham game was this kind of big, strong, well-armored martial artist. Spider-Man is all about flips and twists and webs and Swings. flinging and swinging and loop-de-loos. Yeah, and, and, and you know, quick pace and, and lots of traversal. And so it'll be interesting to see how they pull this off. Um, but again, we've seen some of the elements of this in other PlayStation-exclusive Superhero games like Infamous. Not the same developer. That's, I know it's not okay. the same developer, but I'm saying we've seen that the PlayStation 4 has the capability yeah. to do yeah. the broad open world with multiple traversal mechanics and kind of handle the story. Yeah. Um, the one thing I'm really excited about with, with Spider-Man is it's not 
a it doesn't seem to be falling back on traditional Spider-Man villains. Um, I they're, think, yes, they're I think, in it. I think they're going to do what they did with the Arkham series, and that's there's going to be side elements of the villains that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know they've been focusing the main plot on Mister Negative. Who's uh, not a villain that most people would even it, understand. Exactly. So I think it's a cool a cool way to, to do a game. Um, I've seen Fisk in the game. I've seen yeah, I'm, Osborne. I'm betting, I am betting that Kingpin is actually ultimately the villain of the game. Which would be great. Because he's a Spider-Man villain. Not a, Well, he's a Daredevil villain too, but he's a Spider-Man villain. Yeah. And so, he, he's he's everything Spider-Man isn't. Yeah. So I'm 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 really hopeful. Um, check out the videos if you haven't seen any videos of the game. So PlayStation's got two big games this year, whereas last year they were kind of Horizon it, came out in, in March, and that was about it for PlayStation for most of the year, actually. Yeah. yeah. So they've got God of War in a couple weeks, and then this in September seventh. God of War's coming out. Yeah. When's yeah. that again? April twentieth. Isn't that like the day after your birthday? It's a couple days before. Or oh yeah okay yeah yeah. Huh. I don't wonder what you're getting for your birthday. I don't know. Probably not that. Anyhow. (laughs) Uh, So. Now we're going to talk about an indie game that Jared has been ranting about. Yeah, I did play a game and and Sean uh, said, of course you like this. It's everything I don't want to play in a game. Um, So I said I'd do a review. And he said, oh, yeah, prepare to talk about 30 minutes for this game. And I said, no. I'm going to do it in a minute because that's the premise of this game. And uh, before I get into my review, I'll tell you the basic outline of the game. Oh, that's cheating. <laughs> Basically, you play as a character and you die every 60 seconds and it's all about your progress. Isn't it the same as One Minute Hero? Isn't that the same premise? Uh, that was Half Minute Hero. This is twice as good as that. So I'm going to start my review Right now. So, Minute is a game. Uh, it's PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PC. You play a little sprite character. It's black and white. Uh, if you like Link's Awakening for Game Boy, you would love this game. You go through. You meet all these characters. You have to get little items to progress further. But you have to think very quickly on, you know, I have this item. I can go up here and how much prog- progress you can make. Uh, there are waypoints. You have to kind of think in a fourth dimensional with time. Uh, and then you have, there's like one character, you have to wait the entire life of your character to see what he says to figure out where a treasure is. There's little tidbits like that. Let's call back to the characters, little items. Um, you kind of have to, it doesn't really clue you in on what you're supposed to do. Um, you kind of have to just figure it out like an old school Zelda game. The items are kind of unique and different. There's a watering can, which you have to use in place of your sword. And the ending is hilarious um, and cute and ties into the game entirely. It takes about two hours. Totally recommend it. Please buy the game. 60 seconds. All right, moving on. Because <laughs> if I say anything, that'll extend your time. Yeah. Um, so I didn't see this. I didn't have an interest in seeing this film. I've heard good. I've heard bad. I've heard Sean. Actually, I haven't heard Sean yet. <laughs> you haven't so heard Sean yet. He's going to tell me. So Ready Player One, which was based in the novel of Ernest Klein, yep. the same name. Uh, I read the book. Loosely based on the novel of Ernest I, Klein, I might add. I would say, I won't say I love the book. I love the idea of the book, but the characters in the in the book, uh, I could take or leave. So the movie is not the book. It plays upon some of the key themes of the book, such as Nostalgia for the 1980s, video game obsessed culture, 
um, all of the different kind of the D and D culture, all of those things are, are all present in the film. The problem is that none of the heart or soul as, as narrow and thin as it actually was in the book, you know, the world that Klein set up in his novel and, and you have this with novels most of the time when you talk about adapting them to film. They have to shortcut them. The novel took place over a year, two years. This movie takes place in like three and a half days from start to finish. They shortcut a bunch of kind of the, the world setting. Uh, they simplify a lot of the plot elements. All of the quests that you're introduced to in the novel are simplified to the extreme. Because if you recall in the novel, and, and for those of you who've read the book, I know I'm just kind of repeating something, but for those of you who've only seen the film, and you may not check out the book, it, it is very different. The main character is much more of a Mary Sue. Wade Watts is a Mary Sue in the book. Uh, there's a lot of wish fulfillment from the, you guess, from the nostalgia subculture. And, and it misses a core concept, because when the book was written, it wasn't quite the world we live in today, as far as culturally, where video games and... 80s pop culture and D&D and all of these things are become kind of into the cultural zeitgeist. Everybody accepts them. There's not this negative belief about people who obsess about these things. When Klein wrote his novel, it was still in the days when huh, nerds play D&D, right? Yeah, nerds play D&D, but so do, you know, movie stars um, today. Anyway, the sake of nostalgia, which was the biggest failing and the biggest strength of the novel carries into the movie. There's almost so much visual callback that this is a movie, I think, that Spielberg designed to be screenshotted and stop-motioned scene-by-scene-by-scene scene scene to pick out the Easter eggs. Uh, the biggest problem I had with the film is that the emotional development of the characters, again, shallow in the book, but I felt even more shallow here. Good thing that Spielberg does... He expands the roles of some of the females in the film. So there's a whole part of the book where Wade Watts gets himself caught under an assumed identity and, and stationed in a detention center so he can get inside information about the evil corporation. In the movie, they don't do that. They have one of the other characters do that. Um, and she, the main, the Artemis, the main female character in the film actually goes through that sequence with Wade, and that's all different, right? It has a different perspective. The The sense of menace, I think, was missing from the film, which makes sense when you consider that it's a Spielberg movie and it's made kind of to appeal to a broad, childlike audience or to treat adults like children who are having nostalgia flashbacks. None of the gravity and the deaths that happen in the book, which actually were some of the few impactful scenes in the book, actually happen in the movie. And one of the main characters of the five, five uh, questers right, is transformed into an 11-year-old boy. In, in this may be a flawed recollection, but I believe in the original novel, and it's been a while since I read it, he was a 30-year-old Japanese salaryman who basically was murdered in his apartment by the evil corporation. None of that kind of darkness is in this film. Yeah, that was one thing that was in the book, is that you, you they... They kind of showed the corporate greed and overlordness and sort of that sort of dark conspiracy. You know, they don't own this economic mm -hmm. juggernaut that they operate. And right. And so you, you get the sense of that in the movie, too. 
right? So the corporation wants control of the Oasis because then they can charge you for everything. But that's another piece that they kind of left out. And maybe it would have taken too long to explain in an hour and a half movie. But the everything costs money in the Oasis. And in the book, it starts... The reason Wade can never really get anywhere in this quest, despite all of his knowledge, is that he's so broke that he can't leave the free planet where everybody goes to school, called Ludus. The weirdest part for me when I'm watching the film, and again, this is somebody who read the book and watched the movie... Ludus is actually mentioned only one time in the movie, and it's at the end when Nolan Sorrento is trying to convince Wade to just give the Oasis up to him. And he's talking about how he's going to make it available to everybody and it'll all be better, and you know they would really want to do this. So I think that the, the movie's a lot of visual fun. The characters are light and fluffy, typical Spielberg, kind of happy ending that makes no sense. Um, no weight to their decisions at the end. No real cost. Everybody survives. Um, it, but I, I think, again, Klein is not a great writer. He, he He's playing off nostalgia. And he's playing off kind of inside jokes. And it's very... His writing actually originally was very kind of Mary Sue. Spielberg opens that up. Presents a lot of really fun visual tricks. Some of really busy action scenes but it's missing kind of the the soul of the book in my opinion yeah and i think my favorite part of the book was just the idea of the world and the possibilities it could have and the plot that kind of drove it was just i don't know it's it's that's a problem i have with a lot of those young adult books well it's kind of dystopian right it's it's a world that doesn't really have any chance of happening um, and then the way it's portrayed in the movie actually doesn't give you that sense of total social uh, dis- disillusionment, right? So where society is all, everybody's always in, in the Oasis and they live in the Oasis and they work in the Oasis, which also leads to the biggest problem with the movie's resolution, which is in the book, you get the sense that, you know, Wade has to learn to live in reality and not escape to this fantasy universe that he's been living in. In the movie when he wins the prize, he makes a similar statement, except he makes something that's really weird. He says, now that I control the Oasis, I turn it off on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. But isn't like the global economy based on this thing? Exactly. That is my problem with that. I mean, everything runs. On so this. you just basically unemployed people for two days. Their economy can't function. They can't go to work. They can't go to what school. What about like emergency services? Are those routed through the Oasis? So don't think too hard about this because it completely <laughs> will fall apart. The other thing is that, you know, when, when Ready Player One came out, kind of the idea of a VR and haptics and all of that, and as much as Jared hates VR and our current generation instances of it, they were far off at the point when Klein wrote the novel. Now you can pay $250 and have a workable VR headset. You could pay a few thousand dollars and have a treadmill multi-directional and you could buy a haptic feedback suit. They're not great technologies. They're not mature at this point, but they already exist in our world and people are becoming more aware of them. It's not as alien, foreign, or interesting a concept as it was in 1994. Yeah, but this book wasn't written in 94. I forget when it was written. Like, less than 10 years ago. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that, in my mind, that's still 10 years ago. Uh, it is, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it was written, I think, in 2008 or somewhere around But it's time. still, I mean, 
this is the ultimate kind of fan service yeah. story. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to see it just for that visual spectacle, but I'm not expecting so it's a good. It's a good film to watch in 3D. I watched it in 3D. Um, that's the way that you should consume it if you can. Uh, the other thing I will say is that it's definitely a movie you should see in a theater at least once just because of the scope and the visual splendor. But I found some of the action overwhelmingly blurry and way too busy to follow. Hmm. Um, and I probably will not end up purchasing this when it comes out on, on digital, but I may rent it and watch it with the ability to stop or screen stop, or maybe I'll just read, you know, video game websites coverage of it where they take screenshots of every moment of the film and point out all the Easter eggs. Wow. Okay. That was long. Um, yeah. That was all you. I have a lot to say about Ready Player One in general. And I would say that we've already done an episode on nostalgia and some of its harmful effects. This this leads into the next topic, actually, which I want to talk about, which is the TV revival culture, which is all about nostalgia right now. So what is it about? A year ago, Will and Grace came back on TV. Will and Grace, Fuller House. I mean, all um, of these, it's like... Roseanne. Rose, well, Roseanne is recent, right? And we're also hearing rumors 24. of... 24. Well, 24 tried to come back and didn't succeed. Uh, we've heard rumors that they want to try and restart the office or reboot it, maybe. We've heard basically all these ideas that anything that was popular in the 80s and 90s, usually, and, and we're at this point where it's mostly the 90s, they want to start just kind of cannibalizing those, either bringing the shows back whole cloth, because those are the heydays of network television. Um, hoping that it will capture enough of an audience to keep network television relevant. See, I think that's what I think that's ultimately what this is driven upon is network television does not get the ratings it got even five to seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing all these shows, and but I, and here's I, the thing: I don't need to see new episodes of Will and Grace. I can watch Will and Grace. I can I can binge Will and Grace. I can binge Roseanne. I can, I am, I regularly rewatch The Office. Yeah. Right. Or Seinfeld. They're talking about bringing Seinfeld back, which just baffles me because the whole point was that they shouldn't ever come back. And all those people were horrible people and they went to jail. That was the last episode. But yeah, I, I, this is the bankruptcy of creative culture at the network level and in Hollywood and the cannibalization that is happening because of Amazon and Netflix and yeah. to some extent Hulu. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a ton of creative shows on those, on those places. I mean, almost too many now um, to keep up with. Yeah. Actually there was news earlier today that uh, one of the Netflix freshman series, everything sucks was canceled. It's only going to get a single season. Um, so we're starting to see Netflix do something that they hadn't been doing which is all of these investments they've made in new series are starting to hit the network and they're not renewing everything automatically, mm-hmm. which they had done for the last few years. But that's because they're just saturated with content. Now it's we're not even waiting for Fridays for new shows. Things come out on Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays, you know, and then you get 10 or 14 episodes to consume. You're done by the end of the weekend and nobody cares anymore. They moved on to the next show. And there's so many shows that people have recommended me and I'm like, I, I just don't watch. Have a you lot watched of, Santa Clarita Diet? No. See, now that's a fun show. But I I know there's fun shows. See, everybody's like, well, you're missing out on fun. It's like, well, I am just I? 
I don't want to spend a lot of don't time watch watching. reboot. I, I I have to sleep this one in here. <laughs> do not watch. I've if you're watched, a fan of reboot, do not watch this reboot. I watch a lot of YouTube. I know, like your son. Yeah, but I mean, well, you're that generation. No, I'm not his generation. <laughs> but it's usually about either real world stuff or science or I mean, it's just yeah. non-fictional stuff that I'm more interested in sometimes. That's not called that growing older, huh? It really is about growing older. Yeah. You know, and and for there's plenty of opportunities to watch creative things that happened either ten years ago or brand new. And we're not my my I guess the root of where I was going with this, and I should just get to the point and move on, is nostalgia is beginning to hurt. And I'm again we we've migrated from a point where there was a counterculture of kind of underground people who watched anime and, you know, played video games and, and did all of those things. Well, the days when that was a minority of people are largely gone. Anime is still minor, right? It, it doesn't have the even some of the attention it once did. But the acceptance that people watch it is fine. Culturally, there's no stigma. Or less stigma, I guess less. I should say. Yeah. Um, but we don't need to, to give Roseanne Barr more money to do the same jokes she did 15 years ago. Well, I mean, again, what are they really going to do with these characters that are going to drive them? Nothing. I mean, they're just going to be there to get views and make the same jokes they made 20 years ago and using relevant Maybe modern, reference. modern references that are going to be completely dated. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. Let's let nostalgia rest. I mean, there are, there are other shows like here's here's what I will say about the Office part of this. Will and Grace, that's all character. Roseanne done. Fuller House, same characters. The Office has the potential to be a template to allow new characters to come and go, and it did come during and its go, run, right? Yeah, um, and that that I'm okay with. I mean, you have okay, maybe Dwight on the show or somebody that's been there forever. So there's some continuity to have that glue. But but what if it's not about Dunder Mifflin? That would be even better. Maybe it's the documentary crew that's the consistency. Yeah. <laughs> the the one or two camera format where they, you know, slice of life. Because the humor is transcendent, right? It wasn't really a show about a paper office. It was a show about a bunch of twerk, quirky people who worked together. And how their lives intersected. And how some of them were a little off. And that's actually one of the differences. And how they knew they were being filmed and therefore were exaggerated Yes, uh, caricatures of yeah. themselves, and the editing also was very apparent that they would try and present certain things too. Yeah, um, so let's just like when you're watching The Office, never question why there's a camera in some of those scenes because there's no way there would be a camera for some of those scenes. Yeah, let's move on to our last tangent. Yes, let's talk about death, something uplifting. <laughs> so, uh, loot boxes. I know you love them. Oh, we've talked about them on the show extensively, um, but Battlefront 2 and Shadow of War are removing them. Yes. Well, Battlefront 2 already has. I actually now have Battlefront 2, I have to shamefully admit. I bought a new PS4 because my PS4 died. and I. So my it. question to you, is this based on, let me finish, is this based on the consumer backlash or do you think this is based on the regulation now that government was getting interested in uh, looking at it. I have it. an update for you on that one. Okay. Government doesn't care. All of the bills that were proposed left 
either were re- le- never got far enough past committee to actually get to a vote in any of the areas where they were proposed, like Hawaii, famously, or the act that was proposed was completely rewritten to do something else by the time it hit the floor for a vote. Government doesn't care. They're not going to limit the commerce of these companies. So my answer to you would be there's a fear of public backlash on the part of the publishers that has led to some of these decisions. In the case of Battlefront 2, there's a lot of evidence in kind of public statements that Disney was not very happy that Battlefront 2 hit the market and immediately lost credibility and sales because of this backlash. And that there's supposedly conversations going on um, between EA and Disney to, to make sure that they don't damage the Star Wars brand. Which I or, think Solo alone is going to do a good enough job with that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Shadow of War, that was always controversial. And I think it's past its useful life cycle, and that's why they're removing it. So for AAA games that are already huge budget to build on these consoles that are getting more and more powerful that require development teams to scale to thousands of people. I don't know about well, hundreds of people. <laughs> well, to a thousand people. Yeah. Um, how are they going to monetize their games without microtransactions? I think we will get smaller experiences with, inst- with DLC packs because the market has accepted that, right? So you buy Horizon Zero Dawn, which amazing game microtransactions were not a factor, but they did sell an expansion pack to make additional money. So do you think it's going to be more like what Nintendo's doing with Splatoon Splatoon 2, right? Or we, Square Enix did with Final Fantasy 15. We have a game. They're kind of waiting to see if it's accepted by the public. It is. And now they think, okay, we can charge a $20 expansion for this game. Yeah, well, and Nintendo's a little different than its peers, it is, right? Yeah. The way they approach DLC is a little different. But when we talk about like Square Enix and Final Fantasy 15, where they supported through a season pass, or well, the other thing you'll notice is Injustice. Justice went to its gold edition, right, for Injustice 2, and they have changed the way the loot boxes work a little bit. They also allow you to buy unlocks that'll what used to cost real money to to buy transformations or morphs in the game for armor and equipment. You can now buy a permanent unlock that allows you to do as many as you want for $10. Hmm. So it isn't that the microtransactions are going away. It's that they're evolving as the games age to really identify where's the area we want to capitalize on. So one game I've been playing a lot lately um, is rocket league. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a game that does their microtransactions fairly well. It's all Um, cosmetic. it, It is all cosmetic. If you play the game a lot, you kind of want to invest mm-hmm. in it. And they pretty much are upfront. Like this is purely for development of the game and our competition leagues or whatever it is. Right. And it's what it goes for. You know, it's a up, reinvestment strategy. They're, they're upfront with it. Like, Hey, if you want to support the game, but they're this. an indie publisher, they are technically an indie publisher and they're, they're partnered with Sony and with steam. Mm-hmm. Right. And then Xbox is in there somewhere. Um, but they, they are really looking for assistance in, you know, getting the game to market. And then you're right. Th- this is their way of continuing to monetize so they can do further development and support. I don't have so much trouble with that as a consumer because it's all optional and, I, and I may want to buy 
the Justice League pack so I can have a Superman car or whatever. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, I'm joking, by the way. Okay. I, You're giving me this look across the desk. Everything about that made sense until you said Superman car. Okay, it's actually the Flash or Green Lantern cars I want. Okay. Not the Hawkman car. No. Um, or Ryan Batman. No, I don't want Batmobile. <laughs> uh, which they've already released. There are three. Yeah, I was going to say, there's the Wonder Woman car, which doesn't make... It should be an invisible car. It's just a skin. There is no car. I know. They're just okay. skins yeah. for existing models. Yep. Which is fine with me. And it's like $9, right? Mm-hmm. So you get two actual physical models for the Batmobile and the Superman car. Super there is Mobile. no Superman car. No, there's a Supermobile in there. There is not. I thought they showed that. Okay. I just. It is a skin. The only person that has his own car is Batman and he has it. Because he's Three rich. times. And it's all about the 1%. From all three franchises. He has it from the Michael Keaton version to the Batman Begins version and from uh, Justice League. So. Okay. Anyway, so what I'm saying, as long as it's a, a, a non-gameplay impacting add-on, which in the case of Battlefront 2 or Shadow of War, the argument could be made that their loot box systems were not gameplay impacting either. They were unlocks that you could earn by playing through the game. The problem is that the amount of time you had to grind to unlock those things was insane. But Yeah, and grinding itself is... Yeah. So, I we've already talked about this. Yeah. So... I'll just say, but it's I not mean, going away. It's I, yeah. I don't. I think there will be something else. Everything comes in fads. Everything comes and goes. Well, the season well, pass was I, a fad for a while. It still is. Um, well, it's kind of become accepted. Nintendo has season passes now. Yeah, it's become how accepted. Accepted, they are so. Um, okay, so let's get into our main topic, Sean. Okay, um, let's just start with this. The amount of decay is astounding. I'm so sorry. I told her it's going to be okay, and she said, no, it's not. I can't believe anybody could live this way. This is not somebody's shed. This is somebody's house. Two years, and you never told anyone. Hoarders, season premiere. Okay, so this is probably one of the most serious conversations we've had on this podcast. Yes. So... It's come to our attention, and this is an hour, because we're going to introduce a methodology that Jared and I put together um, based on some very credible actual psychological research around the stages of death and dying. But in this case, we're talking about the problem most gamers seem to have these days, which is the idea of a backlog. Yep. We consume, we buy, we buy, we buy, we buy, we collect. And many of us aren't playing the games we buy or collect. They're just when you have 100 games and you only have two hours a week to play games, my guess is you're going to choose one of those? Well, I think that's a valid point. And, and so the question that we have is, why are we doing this? Why are we engaging in this behavior? This isn't healthy behavior because we're consuming more, we're, we're collecting more than we can actually enjoy. All on this faint hope of, I'll have time someday to get to that. And, and ladies and gentlemen of the audience, allow me to dispel that illusion. Which brings us to the first stage, which is you have enough games. You don't need more. Recognizing that you have a collecting and hoarding problem for games is the first step in getting your hands around your backlog. Stage one, recognition. 
And how do we do this, Jared? There's got to be some way. This is something I've seen you spend hours doing. Uh, hours that could be better spent giving attention to your wife, taking care of your house, <laughs> you know, going out and socializing what with human beings. What are you saying beings. about my house? Is that, am I not taking care of my house? Your house looks like it's in very good shape, but it's hidden behind all of your collection. So I, I'm <laughs> there I'm, might be structural weaknesses we're not aware of because of that pile of games over there. Have you ever seen an episode of Hoarders? <laughs> the hoarder thinks that their collection is in perfectly good, reasonable shape, but what you don't see is the hidden danger of obsession lurking just under the surface. Jared. I'm not just signaling you out because I have this problem. You have too. this problem digitally. I have a digital collection problem. Yes. Um, which so is how, in many ways more harmful. How many games is too many games? So as many games as you could reasonably play and enjoy. But isn't the idea that you could play them at any point? You can play something on a whim and play it? So in my non-scientific analysis of this, what I would say is once you reach a certain point in your game collecting habits, the games themselves are irrelevant. It's not about the enjoyment. It's about the acquisition. It triggers some feral thought in the back of our hindbrains for collecting because we've lived through a drought of games most of our life. And now we have this cornucopia of games. New games come out all the time. There is no shortage of games to play. There's no shortage of games to play, but that doesn't mean you need them all. Well, I mean, you can just inventory those games and then... Well, that's about illustrating your problem. If I illustrate for you how many games you actually own, and then we take a step back and we analyze those games and say, okay, over the course of the last month, over the course of the last six months, over the course of the last three years or six years, how many of these games have you actually played? I bet that number would shock you. I don't think it would shock me. (laughs) But it would shock most people. The idea here is to acknowledge that we are consuming and spending money in ways that we we just, is not sustainable for our health, for our relationships, for, you know, global warming. All of these problems are all spurned by collecting too many games. Consumerism. Think of all the plastic that you are storing in here that's breaking down and those free radical molecules from that pra- from that Super Nintendo over there as it is turning the ugliest color of yellow-orange, rotting in your basement. But that was that was due to uh, just a chemical... It's it's not rotting. See, it's this just, is the thing we have by to UV acknowledge. Light. With recognition, we actually have moved into the second stage now. The second stage is bargaining. Stage two bargaining you just justified why you needed to collect and i'm looking right here as i sit five super nintendo consoles on a table there's another one over there i know but i'm looking at them behind you but those i have to protect you cannot play five consoles i'm holding them for a friend so play them later when we talk about a physical collection you are bargaining at this point you are trying to justify the reason you need these things. I, I don't need them, but I'm gonna I'm gonna protect. Do them. these things actually help you live a better life? They I gotta help them. I gotta help people understand the greatness of the Super Nintendo. Do you need five consoles or six consoles to do well, that? I don't want them in a landfill where they'll die. But without being what loved. is going to happen when you pass on? They will still end up in that landfill. You have not mitigated the problem, Jared. I'll leave it in my will. I'll donate them to a Super Nintendo charity. 
Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of those advertised. It's not like the American Cancer Society. There is no Super Nintendo Recovery Club. Kids don't understand how good the Super Nintendo is. It, they'll be in high demand. Super Nintendos are going to be like a nostalgia. Like they'll they'll be the new iPods. In so let's years. let's talk about some ways that we can curb our habits in the bargaining phase. The first thing I recommend for those of you struggling with this problem, or if you have loved ones who have this problem, this is really advice you should take to heart, which is. Helping that loved one who's struggling with their collecting addiction, their hoarding of video games, to begin to prioritize only the games that they will actually play. Now, when you first have this conversation, it is going to be painful. Because your loved one, your partner, your gaming buddy will find any excuse to tell you why they will play that game. And why they need to buy the 15th re-release of Skyrim. Hey, yeah, nobody needs to rebuy Skyrim. Or another copy of Breath of the Wild. Or Spider-Man. But Spider-Man looks so cool. Okay, I admit that. I, I understand what you're going for. You love the character. You like the idea of inhabiting that world. But the question I have for you is are you actually going to be able to play that game? Yes. And when? I want you to schedule it. September 7th. So, with fact, we can disarm the emotion. And this takes time. This is a therapy. We have to immerse reality into the illusion that our hoarding collectors suffer from. The other thing... Hey, Jared, what's coming out in the next two weeks? God of War. Okay. Are you buying it? Yes. When are you going to play it? April 20th. So, if that's a game that you're going to play on April 20th, do you have any other games pre-ordered for the next month? No? Yeah, well, I, I'm pretty sure you... Didn't you pre-order Dark Souls? Oh, well, yeah, I've got Dark Souls. And Which, Donkey by the way, Kong, you already own two copies Tropical of. Freeze and um, other port of a so game already So, we own. talked about scheduling, right? Yeah. Here's the thing. You have two hours a week to play. God of War is thought to be a 10 to 30 hour game. How many weeks is it going to take you to play that, Jared? That will take me, I don't know, two times. How are you going to play all these games, Jared? I'll play them, okay? I don't think you will, Jared. Look at the time. Look at the time. You're right. I don't... I have all these games to play, and it is just dragging me down. I just so I'm you not sit play in front of I'm your collection. I'm not going to play anything. Okay, fine. I'm not going to play anything. Exactly, and this is where we get into the third stage, which is panic. Stage three, panic. You panic because you suffer from decision overload. You know you have two hours to play games this week. You have 372 new games sitting in front of you. What we often see happen is that people who suffer from this challenge, when you're you're observing them from the outside, and maybe when you're looking at somebody else, I suffer from it, but I can recognize it in others, even if I can't curb my own abilities, which allows me to help impart this wisdom to you. I sometimes will sit in front of my collection of games and go, I want to play a game. And then I'll look at the games and I'll go, okay, I have every game I could ever want to play. 
And I love all these games. And there's some games that I have that I've never played before and I may not love. But it doesn't matter. I collected them, so I have to play them at some point. Because I'm a completionist. I have to check that box off and say that I played it. In that process of looking over my games list, what happens to you? What happens to me? What, what do we end up doing during our panic phase? I don't play the games. You don't play any games. Because you spend so much time agonizing over your choice. You have 327 games you could be playing right now, all of which you swore you would play and could play. So now we've come to the point of decision overload. Which means that that time, that limited time we have when we're not doing the things necessary to keep the lights on and the food on the table and our relationships healthy, is spent agonizing over what game we will play. Is that a healthy behavior? No. So how do we address that? Addressing that panic, moving out of panic into the next stage, is where we want to help people along this progression. And that stage... Probably not going to be able to play everything. You won't be able to play anything if you don't move beyond panic. And panic can last an hour. It can last a week. You can get into a malaise for a year. And I will guarantee most of these collectors, most of these people that we care about, are continuing to buy games while they're in this state. Well, yeah. I mean, you have... Because someday... Someday we'll have time. So what we need to do is help them move to the next stage, which is mitigation. Stage four. Mitigation. So... What is the first thing we can absolutely say about people who have large game collections? They probably won't be playing everything that they're getting. Okay. So you can't play everything you own. All right. Does that help get us past the point of decision yeah. overload? Yeah. yeah. We And how do we do that? We just pick a game and play it. Or... You prioritize the games you want to play. And here's what happens with the decision overload. You see 348 titles, all of which hold promise for you. Well, all of all which, those games you've played, so you don't need to see those. So you can hide games in many of the collections. On, you know, If you're talking digitally, GOG and Steam both allow you to sort and hide games. So you make lists. But, well, you've got your inventory, right? That's the first step. We have to recognize what we have. We inventory the games, and then we sort them, because most of us are catalogers by nature. Um, especially if you live with librarians, which that's a whole different psychosis for my librarian audience. Um, but even in console libraries now, digitally, you can filter your games. You can put them into folders on the PS4. You can do installed versus uninstalled on the Xbox. And on the Switch, everything just kind of runs, and, and you can sort too. So what we need to help our loved ones do who are suffering through this hoarding addiction is realize that there is hope. There is something we can do to move beyond panic. And we can begin to mitigate by reducing the number of options. And that process alone has a cathartic effect, which would lead us to clearing and establishing that we really do have priorities. And maybe if I reduce the number of options... I can focus on those games I really do want to play. And at the end, where does that get us? We just play what we want to play. 
We play what we have time to play. We play what we want to play. What's most important to us. That is when you finally reach stage five, which is acceptance. Stage five, acceptance. We need to recognize that play is a very healthy part of our lives. It's, it's something that we do to find enjoyment and we share with others in many cases. It is okay to play whatever you like when you ha- like to play it. The key is to recognize that you probably already have everything you need to fill the time you have available in a fulfilling way with your current collection. We're not asking anybody to purge their collection. We're not asking anybody to get rid of what they've acquired. But recognizing that the constant acquisition of these titles isn't healthy for your mental state because it leads you to that panic state. Or you can be like Jared and just find more and more obscure games to play. Yeah. Eventually, right? I'll I'll play them eventually. So did you ever actually reach the level of acceptance if you're at that point? Yeah. You did. You accepted that your collection is I'll accept, what? I accept that I will not play some of these games within my lifetime. And? But I can. All right. Well, I'm not sure you've actually progressed <laughs> to the acceptance phase. I think you're kind of stuck in the bargaining phase. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. We're here to help. And for those of you listening to this podcast who know people who suffer from a similar mental stress know that it is possible to help them through this. We're here for you. And we want to hear your stories of loss and pain and anxiety and ultimately triumph. Because this is a process we can work through and come out the other end. You can get that loved one back. They will go to the park with you someday. Or maybe remember the name of their children that they've had for 14 years instead of calling them Hey, kid who, t- who broke Zelda last week. You know, <laughs> these are important things that we have to help those afflicted with this serious mental illness overcome. They can't do it without our help. They're stuck in these phases because something in their brains drives them. It compels them. It is not rational. They need the love and support of their families, their friends, their fellow gamers to understand that sometimes... The best option is not to play. What was that game that you got a while ago? Um, do you remember what it was? I You haven't played it yet? I have about 325 games well, that fit that What was the one? What was the one? The, the one that you got. There's many of them. No, there was that game that you got. When did you get that game? I'm not sure which game you're talking about. The game that you got... Um, I don't have this problem. I don't suffer from this problem. You, no, I think you, you got have a perception like, issue. You got it like two years ago? What I was got, that? I, I'm not, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've played every game I bought in the last two years. I don't. I think there was a game that you got two years ago. Well, what was it called? Do you remember? I don't remember. Because there's but so many. You got it two years ago. Two years? And you never told anyone. Hey. <laughs> I've been a subscriber to the Humble Bundle for almost two years. And I get new games every month. Two and I years, will... And you never told anyone! I will, I will play them eventually. Hey. Now, uh, before we get into the next sections, 
<laughs> yeah, well, let's let's take the parody hat we'll off. Take the parody hat off a little bit. So, um, seriously, most of us have a problem with this. Most do, and it it's the uh, it's the what did you call it? The overabundance of choice. Yes. Decision overload. Yeah. We often talk about decision fatigue in psychology where you have too many decisions to make and eventually you make bad decisions because you've just used too much energy thinking. This is the opposite effect, which is you get to a single choice and you have so many options that you effectively get stuck in analysis paralysis. It's like when Taco Bell extends their menu to 50 items and they're all the same. Well, this is why people can't handle the Cheesecake Factory. Yeah, it's a 72-page menu with 500 items. Whereas you go into, like, Chipotle, there's four items yeah. with some variables, and you're done. It's the same challenge. Yeah. How long does it take somebody to order at the Cheesecake Factory? Probably, like, 20 minutes. And the waiter keeps coming back saying, hey, uh, are, are you, you ready, ready yet? Yeah. Um, are you thinking lunch? Are you thinking cheesecake? So, in all seriousness... Collecting is not for everybody, and I have a lot of people that were really diligent about their game playing where they'd play a game and then mm-hmm. they'd sell it. Um, they'd play it once. To me, it's a mixture of I collect these games not only to sit and look at them. Which he shiny. does. He has a special lighting even. But we've talked about digital preservation in previous episodes. Yes, we have. And and there's another piece to this, which these games have an emotional connection for you. And this is the same thing that, and, and as much as we were making light of those five stages of death and, and dying, uh, the acceptance and all of that, there is actually a lot of similarity between people who go too far and trip into the hoarder behavior. Um, it's scary to sometimes watch episodes of hoarders on, you know, uh, television and go. It's a flip. I can I mean, see that. Yeah, there's 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 similarities. There there could be that And it was the one time that switch. your copy of Final Fantasy VII was stepped on by your older brother that snapped it that set you into a collecting fervor. So you will make sure that that never happens again to anything you care about. For me, it was when I loaned somebody Final Fantasy VIII, which isn't even good, <laughs> and I never got it back that I had to rebuy a copy. Well, and, and interestingly, you know, I I had to accept that I wasn't going to collect RPG books, and I wasn't going to collect but we've, paperbacks. We've talked and about yeah. the backlog for a while, yeah. And how do we how do we monetize it? So I don't want to monetize it. What I want to do is no. I meant uh, maybe not monetize, but my my point is, how do we? Uh, either stream and just say, hey, we're going to pick a game in our backlog and well, hey, this I, is what we're playing. That's exactly what I was doing yeah. for a very short period of time. <laughs> I actually had a ra- random number generator and I had an inventory of every game that I had in my play in my libraries, my digital libraries, whether that was console, whether that was GOG.com, whether that was Steam. At the time, when I built that list, I think across all three of those uh, areas, I only had like 350 games. I have like close to 480 games on Steam alone right now. This was like a year and a half ago. My GOG collection went from like 60 games to 118 in that time. And and what it's really kind of drawn to me, and I I'm fighting it, right? And I'm struggling 
with this because I know there are so many of these games that I love that I've played previously and I go back to them. I play Skyrim multiple times. I buy it multiple times because I play it on multiple platforms. Um, I repurchase games that I used to have on disc that I now can get digitally so I can maintain them. That's my archive, my library. What I would really love to be able to do is share those games with somebody. And and I don't mean I'll give you my copy of my game. I mean showing why the game has some connection to me and talking about the history of the game and, and doing those things, the, the emotional connection, the, the logical background of why this is relevant at the time and place at which... I connected to it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of value in that because we, one area we don't see a lot of kind of traditional library research or contextual history around video games have only been around for 25, 30 years, really as a, a mature commercial medium. We have people out there who can tell you everything you want to know about a black and white film that was made in 1915. We have art historians. We have film historians who, who catalog these things and, and put them in the context of society and history. We have yet to reach that point with well, video games. It's funny that you mentioned that. There is a really good YouTube channel out there called The Gaming Historian. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen this work. I have. I have. He, it is like a PBS level type of show. Um, and he brings everything into context. He did a one hour episode about the history of Tetris. Um, for those that don't understand how, kind of how that game came to the U S and how it came over. Um, but it's starting to happen. We're starting mm-hmm. to see it. Well, when we saw when Kosai here in Columbus, um, moved from its original location mm-hmm. to the current location it's at, which is an old high school, they were trying to figure out permanent exhibits. And one of the things they did was a video game exhibit which talked about the history of video gaming. And this was like in the late nineties. So it wasn't even what we'd consider modern video games. Um, and we have places like the barcade scene where you've got all of these classic coin up arcade games, but there's no context behind them, but you're right. There's nothing to help anybody understand why, what was the trend that led to teenage mutant Ninja turtles, the four player beat them up. Why did that kind of become a thing that Capcom and Konami did at that point in time? Right. Um, I, I, I would love to see, and I, I wish I had the time and energy to be the person to do this, but I would love to see us start to put the context around these things, start to tell the stories because like novels, like movies, video games are something we interact with in some way, many, much more directly in many cases than movies and novels Mm -hmm. and that they have social context and they have emotional context and we need to help capture these things so that, when you got talk to your grandchildren about why Street Fighter V was a huge shift in the franchise because they're playing whatever they're playing at that point, you can give the context of it and help them understand the world that they didn't come into. Maybe you've just found the new direction for uh, science, cosines, and tangents. Well, you know, if this is something you'd like us to cover from time to time, I mean, again, I started kind of my stream called The Backlog, which was kind of what I did with this. I started with Heroes of Might and Magic 3, yeah. and I did a podcast or a, a stream of that. And um, I, I just go on Wikipedia, and I read about developers and histories and studios, and um, like Sean is commenting on before he came over here is I have a copy, another treasure game, mm-hmm. because I'm going down the treasure path of treasure video games and kind of 
I like to see kind of how that studio has gone because um, they're no longer around, really. Right. And we've um, done some of this in our podcast topics where we've talked about genres and worked our way through what was the evolution of that genre. Right. And the problem with genre is it's actually limiting, right? Because a genre is an artificial label that's slapped onto a game to make yep. it a marketing item. Yeah, back back in the 90s, it was like, what type of game is this? Is it a shooter? Is it a fighter? Is it a brawler? Is it a platformer? Is it That's an it. adventure game? Is that it? Yeah, there's no mixture. Yeah, and that was about those. it. Um, because they had to market them. They had to put them on the shelves. They had to put them in this category. Yep, and so. understand what was selling and what wasn't selling. Yep. And why. So. so. I think it's a good idea. I think we should do an episode like that. We should pick something that's not as common. Do some, not. do a uh, Ken Burns style documentary. Yeah. That might be fun. Well, we'd love to hear your feedback. Um, back feeds. The consumers. And speaking of uh, giving of the back feeds, we didn't have any formal feedback except the selection of today's topic, which was <laughs> not to have a different topic. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody that didn't let me go down on the smash hype train. We just don't have enough info yet. I don't think uh, that it would have supported the whole episode. Well, I wanted to do an episode about hype itself and why. And the reason this came up, actually, we did get some uh, indirect uh, back feeds from uh, Brian, who joined us in episode two, uh, Morning yeah. Toast. Brian Vaughn. Yeah. Um, about he doesn't get why Smash is, is so a big, thing. Right. Um, and I kind of want to talk about why it is what it is. And to me, when you have an energetic fan base, I think if we don't understand something, I remember when like Harry Potter came out mm -hmm. and people were just so hyped for it. So expressive. And I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And I shit on it. And, um, looking back, I should on something people that enjoyed and I it, myself for, for no good benefit. Exactly. Right? It, it, if you didn't like it, that's cool. Yeah. There's no reason it's not hurting anybody. Why would you right. stomp on somebody's, but there is something know. about that hype, that fandom that turned you off. No, that is positive. Oh, okay. There are negative, uh, connotations yes. for sure. The fan fiction community. Um, but there are positive <laughs> things around fandom that right. I don't think we talk a lot about. Um, we kind of just, we obsess over things. We talk about these dissection videos that. Inter well, and, and I want to be clear when we're talking about history and context and kind of the, the more academic <clears throat> view of it, I'm not talking about game theory or yeah. game history, those videos where they kind of talk about the development of game from a very, I'm looking at the broader social context too. So these are some things that I, I think we should, you know, toss around. If you've got specific titles you want to talk about or genres or mm -hmm. or eras in gaming that maybe you were not around for as a listener or it's something that you didn't quite get pitch it to us and we'll do the research and we'll come yeah. back and do an episode on it so um none of that this week we have one dumb thing you kind of already mentioned uh previously oh, and I'm, I just... this feature sounds so dumb instabrigging instabrigging in sea of thieves so remember when I told you at the, you know, like two hours ago at the beginning of the podcast uh, about Sea of Thieves and my experience with it. One of the biggest challenges I had was I, I was randomly assigned to people in the game, right? They partied us up on a ship randomly. I didn't know these people. They didn't know me. All they knew is that they didn't know me. And 
the game has this social kind of voting feature that allows you to take somebody who would be a griefer or you know a misbehaving and and messing up the the team cohesion and be able to put them in the brig but what we've seen is that instead of that what we've got is a bunch of griefers who will kick off a vote for everybody and put a random player in the brig if they don't know them or if you get assorted to a, a a team that has multiple people who do know each other whether you jumped in or the game auto-sorted you to it, then they can brig you, and you have no recourse to get out. So I wasn't joking when I said I was put in the brig, and the ship sank, and then I the ship regenerated, and, and you were I logged back in, in, and I was still in the brig. I basically had to log out of the game and wait for another instance to come up for me to be able to log in and play normally. As long as I was associated with that grouping in the game, I was stuck like in the they break. They play tested this very much. Yeah, this is a mechanic that nobody in their right mind would give the worst people access to do this to other players and hope that their game is successful. We've seen tons of people talk about this, and I'm it's it's just not multiplayer friendly. Human beings with anonymity are dicks because there's no repercussion for it. And it's funny to take the guy who just came into your game who maybe doesn't know as much or doesn't know you and does something silly as they're trying to learn the game in day three of the game's release and send him to the brig because he annoys you and he's getting in the way. Well. So Rare really misfired on that mechanic. I think so too. Anyway. Well, that's it for this week. Um, We want to remind you to subscribe uh, to us on Twitter, Facebook, twitch because we are going to do another live yes i have to live up to my promise and donkey kong jungle beat is gonna be apparently the greatest game ever made with bongo cam we will be playing with bongos we have multiple webcams we you will see and hear (laughs) the joy that is me pounding on plastic bongos and probably the table when you flip it because you're upset at the game (laughs) um yeah, that's it. Make sure you uh, subscribe. Tell your friends. All right, till next, next episode. Time. Watch for uh, an update on when we do the Switch stream. We'll try and give everybody a few days' notice at least. We'll put it out through all of our social media on the Facebook page, on the Twitter, all of that. Yep. Bye.